wait. Uh, what if one of them eats something at 11 o'clock, but then he gets something stuck in his teeth? Yeah, like a caraway seed or a sesame seed. Whatever, right, right. And then yeah. after 12 o'clock, it comes out. Now, he didn't eat that after midnight. Yeah, right. I didn't make the rules, okay? The rules? I don't believe this. Oh, wait a minute. What about this? What if they're eating in an airplane and they cross a time zone? I mean, it's always midnight somewhere. <laughs> Welcome back, one and all, to Ramblin', an Amblin' podcast. The podcast where we take a tour inside Amblin' Entertainment Towers to check out all the neat things inside, all the while hoping there isn't some kind of little green man infestation while we're in there. That's if we're not already too late. I am one half of your host, Andy Godian. I'm the other half, Josh Glenn. And a happy new year to you all. We're back after a short festive break with a whole new batch of episodes coming your way across 2022. So it is fitting that our first film of the year should be the 1990 horror comedy metatextual treat that is Joe Dante's Gremlins 2, The New Batch. But to help us with tackling the return of these meddling bastards, (laughs) (laughs) we have welcomed our good friend and fellow Warwick film grad, Ollie Guthrie, to the show to help us get an Amblin Entertainment Towers back in perfect working order. Welcome to Ramblin, Ollie. Could <laughs> you start putting a little um, fanfare on when we introduce guests? I can do that. I can do that. <laughs> Noted. Uh, especially for me. Yeah. <laughs> no, no one else. <laughs> the inaugural clap. <laughs> it started with the guffrey. <laughs> now, we all, of course, met studying film at Warwick, so we know you've got a great love of movies. But as is our nature here at Ramblin', we'd like to ask you where does Amblin' Entertainment fit into that grand picture of a great love of celluloid? Well, I would say it didn't play a massive part uh, in my childhood. Um, just going through the list of, of films that, that I, uh, I looked up after I saw you guys were actually uh, announcing this podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I hadn't seen a great deal when I was a kid, uh, apart from the obvious ones. Uh, mm-hmm. Jurassic Park, Land Before Time was a big one as well. Um, Men in Black. Uh, just all of the all of the ones involving reptiles or scaly green <laughs> monsters, yeah. uh, including which, of course, Gremlins and Gremlins too. Um, but a lot of them, I suppose, I ended up seeing when I was more of a teenager. Uh, mm-hmm. A lot of the ones in the eighties, in particular, and the ones that I suppose I would associate most with Amblin, uh, which would be the Back to the Futures, ET. Uh, and those kind of ones. 
Mm-hmm. And seeing as you brought up E.T. of your own volition there, I'm, I, I have to ask, uh, <laughs> do, do, you, do you cry at E.T.? Are you much of a film crier anyway? I I am. It, it, it happens more as I get older, I find. Mm. Yeah, um, I think we're finding the same thing. Yeah, but E.T., I mean, first of all, uh, this is probably quite sacrilegious to say, I've only seen it once. Um, and I that's, think I that, perhaps... That's, that's shocking. <laughs> I, I, I perhaps get out of here <laughs> I, i'll get my coat um I, I perhaps wasn't uh the best age to see it where it hit me on a particularly emotional level i'd say i probably saw it at the age of 14 or 15 um, right right I, I really enjoyed it but i think it, it probably if i'd seen it when i was a kid it would have uh, affected me more but having mm-hmm. said that Seeing as I do kind of tear up a bit more as I get older, perhaps if I watched it now at the ripe old age of 29, <laughs> it yeah. may have a different effect. So uh, maybe I'll, I'll have to report back on that one, I think. <laughs> What's the most recent <laughs> film that you've watched that you've cried at? <laughs> oh, God. Um, I'm not sure I could answer that. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Think it, has, <laughs> it, it hasn't been a recent one. It definitely hasn't been a recent one. Um I mean, if we're talking about recent-ish films, I can remember tearing up at the end of The Florida Project. Um, oh, yeah, that, yeah, yeah. That yeah. really hit me uh, quite unexpectedly. Mm-hmm. Um, and I love that film. I think I think it's a masterpiece. It's a great movie. Um, so that, that's that's the one that stands out in my memory in terms of recently. But um, yeah. Yeah. Did you cry? Nope. I'm, it's big, big tangent now, but we we yeah. were un- unlucky enough to see the, the new Spider-Man the other day in the cinema. Did you cry at any point in that? Because even, even detractors tend to say, yeah, it's cynical, but it, it, got, it got me in places. Did it get you? No, I didn't cry. Nah, me I neither. didn't cry at the Spooder Boys. <laughs> <laughs> no, I didn't cry either. I'm surprised. Because I've cried certainly- at shit. I was certainly more inclined to tear up at Matrix Resurrections if we're talking about recent. Oh, I cried, yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah actually, I cried a couple of times in Matrix Resurrections. And I intend to cry again when we go and see it again, Andrew. Anyway, this is very much by the virus. That's... What do we do next? Well, well speaking of like of incredibly meta-textual uh, sequels, this episode is, of course, <laughs> on Gremlins 2, the new batch. And I, I will most certainly be bringing the Matrix Resurrections back up in, in, further on in our discussion, to, I'm sure, to Josh Glenn's delight. <laughs> <laughs> but before we get going proper, Joshua Glenn, may I hand the reins over to you to give us the lowdown on what's going on in <laughs> NYC? <laughs> I'll try my best, but don't expect much from this one. <laughs> okay. Hi, monolithic corporate billionaire Daniel Clamp, played by John Glover, is looking to expand his high-tech real estate empire, and the only thing in his way is the antique shop run by Mr. Wing, played by Kie Luke. When Wing dies, Clamp is free to demolish the shop and do as he pleases. In doing so, he displaces the building's one remaining resident, Gizmo, voiced by <laughs> voiced by Howie Mandel. And did we talk on the last one about how he now hosts, or certainly did host, the American Deal or No Deal? Did we ever talk about that? No, I don't think really talk about that. <laughs> I'm only just learning that now. So <laughs> <laughs> Google him. He looks nothing like you'd think from... Uh, he looks you know, nothing like a mogwai. <laughs> <laughs> He's bold! <laughs> the famously hairy gizmo. 
he's also apparently a massive germaphobe uh, so I, I, he got the he got the right role not having to be on set and just staying in the yeah. studio the whole time I think <laughs> ironically playing a character that cannot ever get wet and therefore can't ever clean itself unless it, unless it sort of cleans itself like a cat maybe a mogwai I don't know whatever I don't know while fleeing the destruction <laughs> While fleeing the destruction, Gizmo is swept up by Clamp scientists and taken to their lab in Clamp Center, a state-of-the-art high-rise in Manhattan, where he becomes the plaything of Dr. Cushing Catheter, played, of course, by Christopher Lee. As luck would have it, Clamp Center is also the workplace of Billy, played by Zach Galligan, and Kate, played by Phoebe Cates, who have moved from Kingston Falls and are struggling to make a go of it in the city. When a delivery man who is played by Tuco from Breaking Bad. Did you notice that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there is another Breaking Bad link, which I, I shall bring up a bit later. Ooh. Okay. <laughs> but I didn't know that. Um, I did not know that tu- was Tuco. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it's a little Tuco. Much, much softer and nicer here, though, than in Breaking Bad. Uh, when Tuco overhears Gizmo's song from the lab and continues to whistle it throughout the building, he alerts Billy to the fact that his Mogwai friend is back in his life. Billy springs to action and retrieves Gizmo from the lab, storing him in his desk drawer until he's able to safely sneak him out of the building. Before he's able to do so, though, his work catches the eye of Clamp, much to the chagrin of Orwellian Chief of Security Foster, Foster, played by Robert Picardo, and the careerist interest of his superior, Maria, played by Halivan Morris, who, who, do we know who she is? Halivan Morris... I'm not sure I looked up what else she's done. I know she's a real estate agent now. Well, I mean, <laughs> ironic given that she was in Home Alone 3. She's the mum from Home Alone 3. <laughs> of course you know that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway. Uh, Maria insists on taking Billy on a work date where she hopes to seduce him into a business partnership and perhaps a romantic relationship. While Billy is trying to avoid becoming embroiled in a tryst, though, Gizmo sneaks out of the desk drawer and manages to get himself covered in water from a faulty water fountain nearby. The resulting Looney Tunes gremlins wreak non-violent havoc around the building, and before long they've eaten after midnight, formed gooey cocoons, hatched into decidedly violent little shits, and drank potions that turned them into smart gremlins and spider gremlins and lady gremlins and bat gremlins and electricity gremlins and vegetable gremlins and more a phantom of the opera goblin as well it's therefore up to billy kate and the returning footermans played by dick miller and jackie joseph who of course didn't die in the previous one because joe dante has to get dick miller back uh, to convince the authorities that they need to work together to stop the gremlins before they escape the building and destroy new york city and perhaps even the movie itself <laughs> perfect little end note for it (laughs) (laughs) so to cast your mind back a bit further from from this what what, when can you remember meeting the gremlins for the first time ollie was it was it with the very first one or did you have a kind of truncated exposure to them through this one first or was it very much 1984's original was your first intro no, I, this was the first of the two that I saw, yeah. uh, which is quite interesting. And for me, much the superior film. Uh, <laughs> maybe because I saw it first, but also um, I just love this film. I love everything about it. <laughs> uh, I can I can distinctly remember the first time I saw it. It was uh, on ITV, 
Um, mm-hmm. I, I was a terrestrial child, so quite limited oh, in, yes, uh, yeah. in my choice. But I remember seeing this on ITV at uh, uh, way past my bedtime, at uh, probably about 10 o'clock. Um, and I remember the exact scene it was. It was when Gizmo gets wet from the water fountain. Um, <laughs> uh, and, uh, nothing 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 sinister there nothing sinister um, <laughs> and uh yeah i i just remember being hooked instantly you know i, I like mm-hmm. at the time i was like really into pokemon there were all these little creatures running yeah, about yeah. um they were locking him in the into the air vent and um i was just absolutely hooked from that moment on um <laughs> and unfortunately i remember having to having to go to bed uh, uh my parents <laughs> saying that it was high time that I, that I went to bed on a school night uh but i remember begging my mum to record the rest on vhs um and remember watching it back the next day and just loving it and you know <laughs> all the twists and turns that no one could anticipate just based on those cuddly little creatures um <laughs> at the beginning um, and it became a firm favorite. I'd say this was probably my favorite film um, for a good few years when I was a kid. Uh, and yeah, I went out, got the uh, VHS, the double bill, uh, along nice. with the first film. No, yeah. um, watched the set. first film, enjoyed it, but it never really hit me in the same way that the second did. Not my gremlins. Yeah, there's just something about it. There's something about the the, the anarchy, the, the craziness, the the fourth wall break, obviously, which I'm sure we'll talk about, just mm-hmm. absolutely astounded me as a kid <laughs> yeah. that yeah. that could be done uh, yeah. in a film. Mum, they can't do this. <laughs> They're breaking the fourth wall. Um <laughs> Yeah, it, it's it, it it still remains one of my favorite films. Um, I remember when I great. kind of matured a, a tiny bit, I went back and revisited it and was like, "No, this is a stupid film. I, I've grown out <laughs> of this now." Um, and then after having revisited it in my late twenties, I still think it's a stupid film, <laughs> but I also love it. Uh, <laughs> Falls very much in that category of. <laughs> great stupid smart films for me <laughs> yeah, very much so very much so can you remember when you first discovered gremlins 2 josh because i remember you in the mm. original gremlins episode with daisy you spoke about being handed yeah. the vhs tape but yeah by a wizened old neighbor in the woods <laughs> no it wasn't even a neighbor she wasn't a neighbor she was just a lady that we found in the woods who brought a, a, a bin bag full of vhs tape around to her house it was gremlins and one Batman of my favorite Forever stories of the young plank. josh playing growing up <laughs> <laughs> that's what it's like up north these old ladies walking around with bin bags of vhs tapes waiting for little boys to find them and take them home but no i i had a similar well gremlins one very much entrenched itself uh, as a favorite when i was younger and i think like you say ollie we were all, uh, all pretty terrestrial boys um so i'd struggled to find gremlins 2 for a while i'd heard that there was one and i think my cousin who was a bit older and i looked up to an awful lot he he said oh it's way better because it kind of appeals to sort of edgier um preteen kids i think and i was he was very much in that space and i was a bit younger and a bit more a bit softer which still am and um yeah i I don't remember when i actually managed to find it i think it i think it wasn't until they released that dvd set of the two of them 
and I got that and I watched it and thought, oh, this is this is nothing like the first one. This is what? they can't do this, can they? <laughs> now I, I yeah, I didn't like it when I first saw it, and I, I think I struggled to uh, to wrap my head around the film's more radical notions, um, but. Yeah, the older I've gotten, the more I've I've grown to appreciate. I think Dante as a whole, the older I've gotten, the more I appreciate him as a filmmaker. And part of me does wish that he made every film. And I wish that he'd come back and make more. I, I miss him. The cinema as a whole misses him. Definitely. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. What, what are your yeah. general impressions of Dante, Ollie, as well? Is he someone that you're very well versed in, in terms of what it, what is quite a small filmography, but... Uh, uh, most mm. of the ones you've you've watched watched before, even now or when you were younger. Uh, when I was younger, Small Soldiers was another big one for me. Yeah, mm. that was a huge, huge. God, one. I cannot <laughs> wait. I can't wait to get to that on the podcast. Yeah, yeah. Big love for Small Soldiers, but apart from that, um, not really. I suppose I, I didn't pay much attention to directors at that age um so mm-hmm. I, I i wasn't actively seeking out the rest of his filmography but i have watched a lot more since and it's really mm. kind of solidified that it, he's one of the most eccentric and interesting directors i think that kind of broke through uh that studio system and i i think this film more than any proves that uh because they just gave him carte blanche yeah. <laughs> um, to do whatever he wanted but um no aside from the others uh, I-, I watched a few for this podcast actually um including matinee which oh I yeah a- absolutely loved uh i thought it was brilliant and i'd recommend it to anyone who's got any kind of uh passion for the movie experience the movie theater experience um mm-hmm. it's just it's such a to use a cliche love letter to cinema um mm-hmm. but also just a brilliant film and John Goodman is amazing as well. Um, so yeah, I mean, Gremlins were the main ones, but uh, but yeah, I, I, I would I would say I come on this podcast more as a Joe Dante fan than mm. as perhaps an Amblin fan. Very much, yeah, very much one to do it for. <laughs> <laughs> but what was uh, what was your exposure to Gremlins too, Andy? Was there a moment you can recall? A very very similar trajectory. Now I saw it on TV for the first time. Um, I. I, it must have been about 12 because it was a, a not too long after I'd seen the first one. But I always remember the first one was always on TV a lot more, be it at Christmas or Gremlins 2 never seemed to be in quite as much mm. of a circulation. So I, I remember the day kind of seeing it in the Radio Times schedule. and was like, record that. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I remember like, as a kid being very aware, just going like, oh, this is not the same film at all. But also <laughs> yes. being <laughs> finding it arguably the more like kid-friendly one of the two because it is so much more kind of chaotic and crayons on the wall approach mm-hmm. uh with its penny whistles and uh clown horns and <laughs> <laughs> I, I think he actually went in into the looney tunes uh sound archive to get a lot of oh. those uh a lot of, the sound <laughs> of course he of did <laughs> <laughs> like you say i think it's just uh and to kind of like to build into the the kind of production notes history of, of section of this the kind of the way that this kind of forms into him getting that carte blanche to make the like ideal sequel in his mind is like it's not a it's not a str- it's not an easy road really there's a 
because mm. you should point out there's a good six years in between the release of the first one and this one coming out. And for good reason. So let's wind clock back to the summer of 1984. The first Gremlins has been a hit with, to the tune of $150 million plus dollars upon its initial release off of a budget of $11 million. So Warner Brothers are instantly Bugs Bunny dollar bill eyes insert here. <laughs> they see franchise potential in this and immediately want to get a sequel off the ground. Mm-hmm. And the first man they come to, of course, is Joe Dante, whose immediate response was a firm no, citing that he didn't want to jump straight into another one, feeling the story had very much been wrapped up and it was just too darn difficult to make the first time out. <laughs> Which seems pretty fair because it looks really hard to have made. <laughs> Puppets are hard. Yeah. <laughs> so Dante and Warners and Amblin for a, for a short while part part ways and go about their own projects one of them being in a space in 1987 where they all realign again um but for the most part it warner brothers go out on their own to try and forge an idea of to what gremlins 2 can be uh many of their ideas reportedly kind of just involved rehashing gizmo gets wet multiplies monsters everywhere and also went more towards like kind of expansive ideas of gremlins take vegas or Mm -hmm. gremlins go to mars yeah um all of which they still were pushing past they were they were handing them to dante and spielberg and amblin being like what do you think of this one and just a kind of a constant chorus of no thanks no thanks no thanks and this keeps going up until this cycle of just rejecting ideas keeps going up till 1989 with uh, Dante just coming off of the back of the kind of fairly muted box office performance of his most recent film of the time being the now cult favorite The Burbs starring Tom Hanks good movie Uh, fun (laughs) Warners came at him again with the idea of doing a Gremlin sequel but this time they had a very important uh, detail attached. They told Dante that he could just make whatever the film he he pleased, whatever film he wanted. Um, but Warners were very keen to have a summer blockbuster out for 1990 to write to go toe to toe with Touchstone's Dick Tracy, which they feared would uh, threaten <laughs> to take the box office records uh, oh set down by by their uh, by their 1989 Batman. Uh, so the caveat was if Dante could get Gremlins 2 ready for a summer 1989 release, uh, 1990 release, specifically to for that Dick Tracy weekend, then he could make whatever film he wanted. So with that rare promise of complete creative control and with a promised budget in the range of 30 to, 30 to $50 million, a vast amount more than the $11 million he had to play with on the first Gremlins, Dante simply could not say no <laughs> and set to work building the screenplay uh, with writer Charlie Haas on on board as well. I was going to ask what Columbus was doing at this time, but of course, this, this was prime pre-production slash production for Home Alone, wasn't it? His, his yeah, yeah, this own very masterpiece. Much, very much where he was at the time. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I couldn't find anywhere as to what writers uh, Warner Brothers had approached during that mm-hmm. uh languishing period as well so i'm not too sure whether he was someone that they reached out to to have another crack at it or whether he was just like nah (laughs) (laughs) 
Got too many adventures in babysitting to see too. <laughs> so from there, Dante would go on to engineer a project that he would later refer to as one of the most unconventional studio pictures ever. With Dante including material that he believed Warner Brothers would never have said yes to should they should they not have wanted a Gremlin sequel as badly as they did. So with that freedom to break as many rules as he wanted, he would also claim it was the he would also go on to claim it was the film in which he put in most of his personal influence, being both a satire of the original Gremlins sequels in general, as well as um, poking fun at notions of corporate America, obsessions with merchandising and technology. Some of those concepts very much also brought in by Haas, whose idea it was to take the Gremlins to New York and have a corporate head figure be Billy's boss. Um, Largely, all the production and the story went pretty much to Dante's uh, uh, Dante's way. We're, we're the only concern Warner Brothers having was the idea of get, moving to a city and have the idea of gremlins running around New York being too expensive, which led to the idea um, of housing it all in this smart tech building, which, get, which frankly feels a lot more Dante in its spirit because it's just a complete tower playground, basically. <laughs> <laughs> And also with that increased budget to play around with this idea of a smart building, uh, Dante also had the chance to put more into the puppetry and special effects than he would have had uh, back in 1984 with the original. Uh, with original creature, creature designer Chris Wallace busy directing The Fly 2 at the time, Dante turned to award-winning designer Rick Baker to create his new cast of gremlins. Baker initially declined after... Uh, saying that he simply didn't want to regurgitate someone else's designs, but was later persuaded when Dante convinced him he would have the space to put his own spin on the creatures, what with uh, the camp building being home to a genetics laboratory and many <laughs> gremlin mutations being built into the script, um, very much leaving it to Rip Baker to kind of just go hog wild with <laughs> him and his team with the ideas that they, they may have had. And... The puppets were much larger, much more detailed, had a greater freedom of movement, leading to more dynamic sequences than the original could ever allow, particularly when it came to kind of uh, Gizmo being more in movement, the massive spider gremlin, and the mouth movement of the brainy gremlin, as voiced by Tony <laughs> <laughs> I think my favourite gremlin as well. Of course. <laughs> uh, when it came to casting... As Josh has highlighted, many of the original players come back to play from Zach Galligan and Phoebe Cates as Billy, Billy and Kate and Dick Miller and Jackie Joseph as the Fullermans. Elsewhere, Dante packs uh, the cast with a lot of his regulars in both supporting and cameo roles like Robert Picardo's Robert Picardo as Forster and Henry Gibson in a, ca- <laughs> in a kind of silent movie cameo role yeah. as a poor despondent <laughs> employee caught smoking in the, in the rafters. Unauthorized <laughs> break. Yeah. <laughs> and you also have uh, Robert Prosky play- playing uh, Grandpa Fred, uh, John Glover playing Clamp, a character based upon Donald Trump and Ted Turner, if you couldn't tell. Um, who brought such an enthusiastic innocence to the role that his character was actually written to be less villainous following his casting. Um, and, and of course, Christopher Lee was on board to add that kind of, that similar sort of reverence and gravitas that plays in quite well to the film's uh, 
sense of parody. Um, I also love the uh, <laughs> love the little trivia tidbit of when Christopher Lee and Joe Dante first met. Lee apologized for starring in the sequel to The Howling. <laughs> <laughs> what a class act! He's a man who who never ever ever phones it in. Christopher Lee. No. <laughs> so I was watching this thinking he he's like he's throwing himself into this, but then. He, he did a set. He threw himself into Attack of the Clones and the Stupids. Like the man never phones it in. <laughs> yeah, uh, I, it'll I... be my malaria. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's rabies. I have rabies. <laughs> you know, yeah. I often thought that um, I found it interesting that Christopher Lee wasn't playing Robert Prosky's role in this film. Yeah, tailor made for him <laughs> as Dracula. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I mean, I know there's the, there's the reference to Dracula when um, when Doctor Catheter, as is his name, uh, yeah. sees the bat the bat gremlin and kind of has this flashback of some kind. The music comes um, in, <laughs> but no, Christopher Lee. I mean, he throws himself into everything. You're right, Josh. I mean, he was a voice actor in Kingdom Hearts too. <laughs> um, the guy just takes whatever's on his plate and just uh, just goes with it. Has a ball. <laughs> and the list of cameos in this film is also pretty endless. Again, building into its real, like, kind of idea of being a complete fourth wall breaking uh, train off uh, train off the rails. Uh, <laughs> so you have, like, the original Adam's Family actor John Aston's in there. Composer Jerry Goldsmith pops up again this time to, <laughs> he says a couple of lines after his silent cameo in the first one. Uh, you got the Holster, Hulk, Hulk Hogan himself, <laughs> Dante himself pops up, and uh, movie critic Leonard, Leonard uh, Moulton also makes a very fun appearance, having given the, the first movie a bad review, but being a good sport was up for a gag at his at his expense. <laughs> beyond the so as I said, beyond the desire to keep the Gremlins out of actual New York. And a crest from Spielberg to cut out a couple of scenes because there were too many damn gremlins in this gremlins movie. <laughs> I do love how Spielberg is the unofficial creature monitor. Like in this yeah. movie, there is too many gremlins. Then when he watched um, Rise of Skywalker, reportedly he said to J.J. Abrams in the final act, where's Babu Frick? What happened to Babu Frick? <laughs> <sighs> uh, I, I do think it's a wild note though to be like, Remove a scene with gremlins, please. <laughs> I, I think Spielberg gremlins. and Dante, Spielberg and Dante have quite a funny working relationship. I think mm. Um, mm. it's quite funny hearing Dante talk about Spielberg. Is that he he kind of goes through Dante's films like you know the studio heads being like this this can be cut, this can be cut, this can be cut. But interestingly, the kind of most iconic scene from gremlins perhaps the phoebe kate speech in the first yeah. film yeah um spielberg actually fought to keep that in because all the studio heads hated it and wanted <laughs> to get rid of it and uh dante was like no it has to stay in and apparently spielberg was like well it's your film i don't get it but go, keep go. It in. <laughs> absolute champ yeah we, we, we speculated a bit didn't we in the past with dante unlike someone like toby hooper he was able to really I guess he kind of proved his mettle to Spielberg and he could stand up as yeah. a, a like-minded creative in a way that maybe Hooper wasn't able to with Poltergeist. 
So Spielberg. I also think there's like a. Respects that. I always view Dante as a bit of a kind of like dark universe reflection of Spielberg (laughs) anyway. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. There's just a slight more kinship going on there. (laughs) Absolutely. Hooper's just too damn weird. (laughs) <laughs> There's a lot of power. Obviously, Jaws and Piranha. Uh, yeah, you could say you could say Gremlins is a bit of a dark spin on like ET. Yeah, um, for sure. Even The Burbs, it kind of has mm. elements of, of Close Encounters mm-hmm. um, with uh, with Tom Hanks' character, kind of uh, becoming this crazed conspiracy theorist at the at the. Uh, uh, the, to, to the despair of his family uh, so mm-hmm. there's a lot of interest it's, it's a really interesting relationship between the mm-hmm. two of them I think definitely definitely <laughs> please make more <laughs> <laughs> come back Joe we'll tweet him maybe he'll yeah. respond he liked one of our tweets once he did <laughs> cling on to that <laughs> so yes the film very much remained in Dante's vision even to the point of being able to he was even man- managed to coax Chuck Jones out of retirement to come and uh, animate and produce uh, two Looney Tune uh, bookend sequences with Bugs Bunny and Daffy Duck, which is I, I like going over any any point in Dante's career. The Looney Tunes uh, influences so very clearly felt. So it, I imagine it was absolute joy for him to be able to work with Bugs and Daffy. Not for the not for the last time though. <laughs> As of course. <laughs> Back in action would prove later on <laughs> in the early noughties. Um I he did indeed as well manage to get it ready for uh Dick Tracy weekend, which was uh, June fifteenth, nineteen ninety. Um but sadly it did it had little effect on uh, Dick Tracy's uh, box office power. As Dick Tracy opened at number one over the weekend to the tune of $22 million, whereas Gremlins 2 opened in at number four with 9.7, trailing behind holdovers, another 48 hours, and Total Recall. Uh, while critics seem to enjoy the film, uh, Moulton himself gave it three out of four stars, calling his <laughs> calling his own cameo <laughs> gratuitous. <laughs> it's a ten, it's, it's not- a ten. Isn't that a conflict of interests to review a film yeah, that you're still being mauled by <laughs> Uh The film would sadly only go on to make $41.5 million worldwide um, off of its uh, total budget, which is rumoured to have gotten closer to the $50 million mark than it was to the $30 million mark. So it was not a was not a hit in any mm. in any shape or form. But uh it did outperform other sequels of that year, including Predator Two, Child's Play Two, and The Exorcist Three. <laughs> I said, I said it's a it's a good comment that all of those were sequels as well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I did enjoy that point. <laughs> uh Dante himself attributes the lackluster box office to too simply too much time passing between it and the first movie. But I think it is fair to say that it has has undeniably come to be looked back on fondly as one of the purest distillations of his work as a filmmaker. I think the main question that people have is, the creature, what is it that you want? Fred, what we want is, I think, what everyone wants and what you and your viewers have, civilization. Yes, but uh, what sort of civilization are you speaking of, creature? The niceties, Fred, the fine points. Diplomacy, compassion, 
standards, manners, tradition. That's what we're reaching toward. Oh, we may stumble along the way, but civilization, yes. The Geneva Convention, chamber music, Susan Sontag. Everything your society has worked so hard to accomplish over the centuries, that's what we aspire to. We want to be civilized. I mean, you take a look at this trail here. Now, was that civilized? No, clearly not. Fun, but in no sense civilized. So I think that's quite a good uh, kickoff, really, for our general discussion. How how is is this the most Joe Dante a Joe Dante movie <laughs> has ever been to you guys? I'll throw it to you first, Ollie. <laughs> I, I I would say yes. It's it's everything that I love about Dante is in this film, um, and I think a lot of that is because you know his background and his influences come from animation um and b movies uh and and i feel like this takes from so many different things um and halfway through the film kind of dispenses with plot entirely and just becomes a series of bits and a series of gags as we said earlier um so yeah i i, I think it's it, it it's dante just enjoying himself and i think that really shines through and it's probably why i enjoy it so much Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, you, it's Josh? hard. It's hard to imagine somebody as idiosyncratic as him getting a blank check nowadays. Cause it is one of the dictionary definitions of a blank check film in that he, <laughs> you feel no oversight on this at all. In 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 the best possible way, if anyone's going to get you know carte blanche, I'd like it to be someone like Dante who's got that vision. But yeah, like Ollie's saying, he's got all these. These, these 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 cartoon and these schlocky B movie influences, and I mean, it, it, even insofar as how he he, he holds on to his stalwart actors like your Dick Millers. One of my favorite things is um, after the little prologue with the the and Mister Wing's store getting demolished, the um, we're introduced to Billy and Kay in like a this overhead long shot, and the first bit of dialogue they spout is a retcon of Dick Miller's death in the previous film. <laughs> that's where <laughs> that's where Dante's priorities are. He, his main yeah. concern is getting Dick Miller back, <laughs> back into this movie. <laughs> and not only is he back, but he's one of the heroes. I'd say he's maybe sort of one of the top five characters in this film in terms of prominence sure. and importance. And uh, I, 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 just that I think we've mentioned it maybe before in the Inner Space episode, but it speaks to Dante's loyalty. He's, he's, he's he knows what he's about. He's a very clear-minded guy, and he's got um, he's got collaborators around him that I think share those thoughts and share those predilections and they bring out the best in him and th- yeah. this probably isn't my favorite of his but i think it i mean for purely sentimental reasons like inner space and the first gremlins were big childhood films for me um whereas this one i think is is probably the most undiluted joe dante and i'm so pleased that we have it <laughs> mm-hmm i bet yeah it's a small miracle it exists in the way that it does <laughs> particularly yeah. to come out of this like I, I, I was listening to an interview he did after a Q and A at a screening at the Egyptian Theatre in LA, and he's he even talked about how kind of at the time um, there was just this generation of of studio executives who were just allergic to any idea of fourth wall breaking, hmm. and for for a filmmaker like him, like you alluded to there, Ollie, like growing up on stuff like the Looney Tunes, where that the whole kind of conceit of those cartoons are to completely break the fourth wall and to like really address you as an audience member, be you a child watching it or a parent watching it. And then to also 
go through the Roger Corman school of filmmaking, mm. which is so very aware of everything that its audience is coming for in the brand of movies, that, particularly the brand of movies that they're peddling out. So to be to then go into this studio system and constantly met with this kind of aversion to that kind of style of filmmaking, I can only imagine how frustrating that was as a emerging filmmaker during this time. And then to suddenly just have a the, one of the major studios in Hollywood at, at the time and still today just suddenly go like, here's 50 million, just go. <laughs> <laughs> Follow your flights of fancy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, there is that, Um, I don't know if we mentioned it in the previous episode when we're teeing up this one, but there is that Key and Peele sketch where they, uh, where... <laughs> Where Key plays this flamboyant studio overseer who comes in and, and sort of messes with the dynamic of the writer's room and, and says, everyone invent a gremlin and, and sort of pushes them down these rabbit holes. But, you know, the opposite is true in reality. Yeah. This is all... I think it really discredits Joe Dante <laughs> yeah. in that sketch. <laughs> it's a funny... Maybe that sketch represents what happens in Joe Dante's mind, but this, this all stems yeah. from the same source. <laughs> I I I was listening to Dante say that ev- everyone would contribute to the film. Yeah, and mm-hmm. um, they I think they had a whiteboard up in the writers' room, and not just writers, but anyone could write a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like a little five second bit, and if they liked it, they'll go, "We'll put that in the film." <laughs> so I I think it was. I know it's supposed Literally. to be a parody, but I honestly think it was probably quite accurate to, <laughs> to the actual process. Well, guess what? It, it's in the movie. It's in the movie. Not only is it in the movie, but it is definitely in the movie. <laughs> You're a psychopath. And I also like that because you, you feel it in that, like, there's a really palpable sense in the film as well that what s- starts as kind of like you kind of, you get, yes, you have that kind of the um, first direct kind of off kilter opening with where the credits are uh, preceded by a Daffy Duck and Bugs Bunny cartoon, but you can kind of like slightly chalk that out to just being like, oh, it's just something that the that has been added to the film reel by the studio. That's not actually part of the film, right? That's that, that's not mm. part of the film. Let's let's get into the <laughs> film, and then it's like you say, it does start off by like, here's the characters that you knew before. Here's what they're doing yeah. now. You're like, okay, so far so yeah. sequel. And <laughs> and then it is and a lot of reviews of the time kind of make the same comment and particularly negative reviews of it as well mm. that say like the film completely loses itself after uh, the gremlins emerge and I'm like well that is entirely like the whole conceit of the film is that yeah. as soon as these em- emerge everything that just <laughs> becomes a complete playground for. Uh, deconstruction and destruction yeah and like mm. it, it is like I, you really feel that unbridled energy just kind of emerge as the gremlins emerge and <laughs> instantly everything's off, like everything's off the table and anything can happen like, <laughs> like even what like so this is like the I've, I've seen this film numerous times like like yourselves and just like watching it last night for this i was just kind of i was still sat there thinking like i have no idea what's gonna happen despite knowing what's, <laughs> I, I knew what was gonna happen but the, the spirit of it just puts you in the complete space of like anything can happen <laughs> it is like a looney tunes omnibus it, it is just sort of like 
bit to bit to bit to the point where you, there's almost a sort of um, unspoken disdain for the character of Billy and the character of Kate <laughs> and even Gizmo. Like whenever they come on, they're oh, absolutely especially lame ones. Gizmo. The film, <laughs> just the film has no real time for them, and, he, and even. Not to jump the gun, but even the way it kind of wraps up their story, it's in this very disingenuous, pseudo-happy ending in which no one really mm. learns anything and, and is set to repeat the same mistakes over and over again. <laughs> but it's like the, the film, yeah, the, the, the gremlins overpower the whole film to the point where the, the ostensible protagonist is just ushered out and it's like a drag whenever he comes back on screen. <laughs> it's true. I, I I was listening to the the commentary that Dante did with uh, Zach Gallagher, mm. who plays Billy, and um, they were they were actually commenting on the exact thing that that Billy spends most of the film just going round saying to other characters, "We've got to we've got to do this. We, we've got to do this. You can't get them wet. No, you you can't turn the light." Like, and that that's just his role in the film. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's good. They're all they're all perfectly game. I, I really um I'm pleased that Phoebe Cates gets she gets some good bits here. I think we, we may have mentioned it previously, but the that bit when she, she launches into um another sad story about Lincoln's birthday <laughs> <laughs> before Billy cuts her short. And they're like, oh no. <laughs> but she plays that scene really well. I think she's she's they're they're all very, very game in this film. Yeah. And I think, like, even kind of speaking speaking to that point of how game they are, there is a, a, a there's a making of on the DVD that I popped on that it's like it's completely designed to be in key with the um, the whatever the film's peddling because it's it starts off just being like a kind of standard promotional material thing that would have been put out on TV on like ahead of the week of release. Where they're all like, yeah, "Yeah, this is going great. It's great to be back with everybody." And then it goes like, "But suddenly there were rumors that uh, <laughs> no one was getting on in the cast, and Gizmo was being a prima donna." And they're all going like, "Yeah, no, things are getting really hard. <laughs> and Joe Dante's losing it. The Gremlins are taking over." So that, like, even like the, all the promotional material. Well, at least this segment of the promotional material is all in on the bit of like selling it as just the Gremlins completely taking it over and i also love the idea of uh, there's a bit where gizmo's being interviewed and he's just like it's all lies they're all telling you lies they're wicked <laughs> wicked horrible lies and then he's like i wanted a cappuccino <laughs> is he voiced by howie mandel in those behind the no, scenes no i've made this well. up there are subtitles but i, I i'm I, i'm inflicting <laughs> 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 I, I do think that Dante sort of takes the gremlin side. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh yeah, definitely, I, I think definitely. he's definitely like enjoying the destruction just as much as the gremlins. And you know, from the Absolutely first film, I, I, as you said, Josh, it's uh, most of the scenes that Gizmo are in, he's being tortured in <laughs> some way. And yeah. I, I think that stems from the first film with how much they hated having to operate the puppet yeah. that they just decided to devise various different ways of, uh, <laughs> of torturing the poor guy. <laughs> I guess he gets did, his Rambo moment think... at the end, but he does. <laughs> I, I love, I love that. I guess they pushed him too far. <laughs> yeah, that's such a good line. <laughs> What happened? <laughs> what happened to him? <laughs> it's, that's one of the best. <laughs> oh, was, I also a, found the, yeah, the, the, the puppet on, much cuter this time. This time out, I found a, the, the yeah. whole redesign of Gizmo. <laughs> even like you could talk a lot about how 
the Gremlins redesign is all about the bigger, meaner, nastier, more outlandish. But even like down to the Gizmo redesign, it's subtle, but he's much cuter. <laughs> he is much. He's more Furby esque in this one. Yeah. I would say. Uh, yeah. In in the first one, in the first one, I'd say all of the Mogwais, uh, including Gizmo, kind of looked a bit more like a rodent. Or, yeah, or something. They were cute, but mm. probably not something that you'd like to keep in the house. But mm. this one, you know, uh, as you say, Rick Baker wanted to do character work uh, on these puppets, <laughs> so they made them so much more expressive. They've all got personalities yeah. in the way they look, um, not just the Mogwais, obviously, but the Gremlins too. Um, yeah, yeah. Which um, which one is your favorite Gremlin? I want to talk about individual Gremlins for a little bit. Which, one, <laughs> <laughs> which one's your favorite, Ollie? And has it changed over time? <laughs> I, I, I mean, on on the strength of the Sinatra sequence alone, I mean, it's it's just got to be the brain gremlin. I, I, <laughs> that and the interview, which is perhaps my favourite yeah. scene in the whole film. Oh, God. Um, <laughs> we want to be civilised. I mean, you take a look at this fellow here. Plucks out a revolver <laughs> and shoots a little guy. <laughs> Like one of Was the that few civilized? No, fun, but not civilized. <laughs> one of the few references to Susan Sontag. Oh, in, yeah. In as well. He just throws her name out there, doesn't he? Yeah. Civilization, the Geneva Convention, chamber music, Susan Sontag. <laughs> that's, a, that's a really good impression. Actually, I, I always used to think that they were that the Brain Gremlin was sort of an American trying to do a British yeah, accent. Yeah, me too. Ended up, ended up coming out a bit Australian in a way that lots of uh, Americans doing British accents tends to do. But uh, actually, it turns out that Tony Randall, the voice actor, was supposedly doing a kind of Ivy League Princeton yeah, yeah. for the Brain Gremlin. <laughs> 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 no, the Brain Gremlin is a firm favourite. I, I'm also a big fan of the, the Vegetable Gremlin oh, just yeah. on account. Yeah. Account of how grotesque it is and just the concept in general. <laughs> yeah. the, I, uh, I the, generally the relate to so great characters as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. The, I'm a big fan of the, the lettuce leaf ears. Yeah. yeah. I lo- love the detail on that. I think it's amazing. The Gremlin himself is loving it as, as he's turning into a vegetable. He's having a great time. He's really enjoying the process of becoming a vegetable. How, how prepared are we to talk about uh, Greta, the uh, the lady gremlin? <laughs> oh, <laughs> baby. That's a, that's a whole thing. <laughs> I wish I was Robert Picardo at the end of the Gremlins 2 film. Uh, oh, boy. No, I don't know. I don't know. Mm. Not, I not, do not love one how, of my like, resu- like how accepting he is of it, or <laughs> of her at the end. Where he's just like, <laughs> yeah, <they're> all right. <laughs> well, they could save me in an hour. It could be a week. I don't know. Might as well have you know, the best time that I can while I'm here. <laughs> it's it's such a strange yeah, way to I know. end the film. <laughs> yeah. <I know>. <laughs> <laughs> it's just so much. I don't know. Yeah. Because even that idea of um, all these different forms of gremlin does feel like something that would be a studio note going in. But mm. because it's kind of driven to the utmost extreme of what that kind of idea of bigger, badder, meaner yeah. is mm. for, for the film. Um, I think that really builds into its kind of 
what what it is doing as a kind of deconstruction of what you want from yeah a sequel um i how do you how how do you see it kind of play in relation to both kind of sequels at the time because like when you look at particularly like so amblin entertainment in this instant in in this instance when you look at it it's whilst it is kind of quote unquote a brand there's not that many franchises within it you've got the big ones be back to the future and the jurassic park franchises but otherwise there's only like maybe there's like gremlins and zorro that have like two and then that's kind of men in black uh men in black that Mm. yeah that's another another one that's got a, a few more under its collar but otherwise they just don't they don't seem to go in for the sequel thing as mm-hmm. like heavily as like some other uh, production companies might. Um, how do you see it kind of both for the time playing on the idea of a sequel and also now kind of transplanting it to today's kind of um, landscape of blockbuster cinema? Well, uh, the, the film's a parody of sequels in general. Right? Mm-hmm. And I, I, I mm-hmm. feel like at the time, particularly, I feel that the 80s, was probably the explosion of the franchise, the the blockbuster sequel, uh, and you just had endless amounts of you know, um, well, the Howling for one, uh, <laughs> I, 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 you know, which was one of Joe Dante's early films, and um, I think by the time Gremlins two came out, there had been eight, uh, seven mm. or <gasps> eight. Uh, Jeez. Well, oh no, maybe may, maybe the seven or eight now, but at the time they'd been like five or something. Wow. And I feel like that must have been on his mind when he made this film, you know, yeah. of what can happen when studio bosses just get their hands on this idea yeah. and just run it into the ground. Uh, and they um, have the, the Gremlins ripoffs too, like Critters and, you know, Hobgoblins yeah. and all that shit that, that themselves <laughs> have many sequels. Leprechaun have many, many sequels. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And actually, there's a, there's a really good nod to that at the beginning of the film. If you, it, you know, the long shot that you mentioned earlier when mm-hmm. um, uh, Billy and Kate are walking down uh, Times Square, if you look at the cinema, you can see what's playing on the cinema, and it's The Howling 11. <laughs> <laughs> I never noticed that. <laughs> you, need, you need an eagle eye, but I, I feel that, that that really sums up what Dante thinks about this Got whole... eagle eye Guffrey looking out in the background of Times Square. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> I, I feel like that that just sums up what Dante thinks about yeah. uh, about sequels in general. And, and But I also think in terms of how it plays into today, I feel this film is really ahead of its time yeah. in the way mm. that it is so self-reflexive uh, on itself, commenting on itself, parodying itself, satirizing itself, satirizing its place in the culture, you know, which I feel like a lot of films do nowadays. Um, you know, just when an idea of a film or an idea of a, of a franchise becomes embedded in the culture. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It becomes, you know, it's a postmodern idea of it starts to comment on itself, right? And mm-hmm. uh, you only need to look at the most recent Matrix film and the, the Spider-Man films as well. Um, and Scream as well is, yeah. is, another, is another good franchise which does exactly the same thing. But I do feel that Gremlins was kind of ahead of the curve. Gremlins 2 was kind of ahead of the curve in that way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I th- you said it best then when you called it uh, the, 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 the best dumb smart film or wh- however it was that you phrased it because it is <laughs> yeah. ostensibly so gaudy and grotesque but it the way it's utilizing those things to like eat itself then regurgitate itself then eat that then regurgitate that it's constantly sort of finding this this the most 
purely concentrated form of gremlins bile that it can. And to pick mm, up on yeah. a point that you made about um, how all the different gremlins feel like studio notes, it does almost preempt the sort of the, the, the idea of toyeticism that will become, I did inverted commas, but you can't see because it's a podcast. Um, like You, you know the idea of, of films being toyetic. Like I think Joel Schumacher's Batman films popularize that term where you introduce more yeah. gadgets and gizmos to sell more toys. This does feel like that, but then it pushes those individual um, design differentials to such grotesque extremes that you couldn't really toyify those because they're so horrible <laughs> so <laughs> violent and macabre so i, I do feel like it, it almost presupposes that because I, I you know i guess the merchandising boom was really exploding throughout the 80s so this was at the sort of in in in, in the middle of the you know the popularization of that yeah but it's quite a, it's quite a funny little subversion of that instinct Definitely, definitely, I, and like even, even to, to your point about like kind of like it, like making them so grotesque that you just like I would still kill for a, a yeah, figure of every single one. Of oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but even more to the point of like that, like I know m- mentioning Matrix Resurrections, it just it does feel quite like to use that more as a clear-cut example that does feel like that's that was birthed out of a similar place of like uh yeah like, i think even lana wachowski's even said it said as much and even the kind of film addresses as much as if she didn't make it here and now then warner brothers were gonna go ahead and make something anyway that probably would have happened with gremlins if dante still said no at this juncture mm-hmm. of the gremlins too and there's that similar sort of um like attitude of like oh so th- you sure you want you sure you want this let let all right i'm going i'm going <laughs> <laughs> and I, I i do think that like you say it does make it so so unique for both this time of when it's coming out where it whilst cinemas aren't aren't completely could and blockbusters aren't completely controlled by kind of ip or sequelizing quite yet to the extent that we see today is starting to bleed in and this feels like an early kind of rallying cry against that kind of idea of uh uh really kind of watering down a product to to which is quite fitting for this to just Mm. for the sake of like keeping the the uh cash registers chiming or or the toys on the shelves which i think is even like Mm. I know it sucks for everyone who's kind of involved in making it. Of course, you want these sort of things to be a as he success, but you I think too, it Ollie. almost, uh, he almost has, builds yeah. to <laughs> the film's favour. Those <laughs> damn gremlins. Uh, it wasn't Strike a again. huge box gremlins. office success. I do hope you'll excuse the interruption. I think I'm infinitely more qualified to do this than the announcer. You probably recognize me from my stunning debut. I'm the big star of the hit comedy, what can I say? Two claws up. (laughs) Gremlins 2, the new batch. Oh, you humans may try, but it takes someone like me who really understands the nuances, the subtleties, the uh, je ne sais quoi. Take it from me. This is the hot video ticket. Forget those teenage mutant reptiles and that robo thing. 
My friends, the critics raved in their reviews. Hysterical, great, hipper and funnier than the first. A happy mixture of sophistication, he must mean me, and utter silliness. Hmm. Well, thank you for your valuable time. But now, like the true executive that I am, I have other meetings to disrupt. So, back to the video. <laughs> Did I freeze? Yeah, you did. <laughs> you did. My God, man. Oh, no. <laughs> They're in again. <laughs> but kind of to round up that point of like it being a kind of rallying cry for the kind of uh, studio demand of sequels uh, to throw out on audiences, I, or I almost think it works to the film's... Uh, what the film's mo that it wasn't a huge box office hit i don't know there's i know it sucks for the people that made it that it didn't make money but there's something about it not being a mega hit that feels kind of right <laughs> i think especially Actually, given the way that this film dramatically wraps up because i it, it, it like i mentioned previously and i'd be cool to sort of discuss it with you guys but I, one of the things this film does in, in the bigger and better mold is it, it takes that sort of small town uh reaganist 50s nostalgia and american quote-unquote exceptionalism that is really a form of exploitation and sort of crass you know uh crass expo- you know whatever um and it sort of pumps up to this big city-wide level so i guess randall peltzer represents the small town would-be entrepreneur and this film posits that by the late 80s early 90s that attitude had permeated through the cities and kind of embodies what New York is, this grotesque capitalist f- fantasy hellhole. Yep. Uh, and then like the, the, the comparison is made, like Clamp is uh, a man who has this high-tech building and all of the uh, inventions don't work. There's, there's a great runner with their automatic doors constantly failing and like at one point yep. they, they trap an employee in there and by the end the SWAT team comes in and tries to get in via <laughs> the automatic doors but they're blocked and <laughs> they can't. Um, it, it, funny and, you mentioned that SWAT team. Uh, you know how I said that there was another Breaking Bad reference. Oh, okay. What one of the SWAT team is um, Walter's brother? I can't remember his name. Well, oh, d- Hank. D- Dean Norris. Hank. What? Yeah, Dean, Nor- Dean Norris. Dean Norris is has what? a habit of doing this in night it- movies. <laughs> what? He's in, he, he he's the- in Total Recall too, isn't he? He's like quite the nineties. He is quite, quite he's the in Terminator Two rather. as a SWAT guy as well. Jesus. <laughs> G two and T two. <laughs> but the film, like the the, the it, it posits at the end, it, it, it registers as a triumphant note. But if you think about what really happens, is that Clamp doesn't really learn anything he just figures out a new way oh. to launch a form of exploitation mm. billy and kate are absorbed into that and made complicit you know there's there's no sense that the wheel's getting broken it's, it's more that the mm. like you say dante's with the gremlins when they get defeated this grotesque late capitalist wheel perpetuates itself and uh, mm. i forget what you said that brought me on to this but yes, yes. So in a, if anything, the fact that the film didn't succeed is quite a, a, a nice rebuttal to that because it, it that is, yeah. a, is, is a metatextual act of stopping this <laughs> this wheel from turning, almost. There's a there's a great Absolutely. quote by um, Jonathan Rosenbaum, who's one of my favourite critics, and has mm-hmm. written some really good stuff on Dante. 
Uh, and he says that Dante's whole style is to be a cult director. Mm. You know, he, he almost shirks the stage in being at, at that Spielberg level. Yeah. And uh, that, that, that's why I feel like a lot of this film is sort of a repudiation of the success of the first film. In yeah. A lot of ways. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Almost like he was trying to make it fail with, <laughs> in some ways. I mean, when I found out that this film bombed, it really shocked me because mm. I was like, this is just the most inventive, funny, exciting, eccentric film. Um, but yeah, I do feel that there is that aspect of Dante that kind of uh, quite enjoy, quite enjoys uh, not playing to audiences. Yeah. And particularly the kind of like targets that it, uh, what it targets as a satire, be it, uh, are all quite like um, emerging trends in the 90s and stuff, which has only gone on to be even more of uh, yeah. fad, fads and interest now, be that uh, genetics or, <laughs> or, or even just like the complete obsession with tech and smart, smart tech particular, in particular. And, uh, the idea of big uh, figures on as part of a kind of like uh, owning their uh, owning everything under one umbrella as well. Like you could, it's it's Amazon Towers now, basically, isn't it? And whilst at yeah. the time it is all about kind of targeting Donald Trump as a figure in New York and also Ted Turner as head of CNN. I mean, the clamp it's called ccn isn't it it's even like it's not really yeah. <laughs> trying to hide it at all <laughs> um and just how it's like using uh users clamp to for these targets but also how it's managed to kind of uh predict the way that certain trends will go be it the smart tech or um kind of a focus in genetics so mm. i think to to that point what are your guys kind of that element of its satire beyond the kind of parody of sequels in general what are your guys kind of feelings of daniel clamp and uh clamp towers in and what it kind of symbolizes for the film throw it to you first ollie well i think it's interesting how you say it widens it out to new york which it does to some degree uh certainly with you could imagine that daniel clamp is kind of what Rand peltzer Yes. would be taken to its horrific excesses yeah, yeah um, but also there's a there's a big narrowing down in a lot of ways mm. um you know yeah the stakes are raised and kind of going to new york for the second film is sort of almost become a cliche at this point yeah but i think <laughs> but but i think it is one of the most brilliant conceits of the film is that they decided to just solely focus laser focus on this techno smart tower um, you know this this sort of tower of Babel with Daniel Clamp at the top, literally above the clouds. If you look out the, <laughs> the window of his office, you can just see clouds below him. It's brilliant. Um, but yeah, I I agree with you. I, I feel that one of the odd aspects of the film is that Clamp is so likable, and I, I think that mm. that that happened because John Glover was just such a a magnetic screen presence that they kind of rewrote his character a bit. Um, but I think it does undermine some of the more sinister uh, things that, about corporate culture um, and capitalism that perhaps the film is satirizing. Yeah. That, that, that's quite, I think, to bring The Matrix Resurrections back. Have you, have you seen it yet, Ollie, first of all? I, I haven't. 
we will we'll, we'll tiptoe around um, certain points, but I think some stuff is. I, I won't I won't say more than is shown in the trailer, but um, one of the big things that Resurrections does is it takes the idea of Agent Smith as the antagonist in the original trilogy. He is the sort of nineteen fifties G man, very very you know cold and almost non human. Uh, and that's replaced with this idea of the contemporary tech bro. He's a very kind of Elon Musk-esque figure, very friendly, ostensibly approachable. And weirdly enough, through an accident of casting that almost, like you say, undermines the film's satire, Clamp does end up rep- representing a tech bro more so than a traditional kind of cold um, Yeah you know authority figure so in that way (laughs) yeah yeah so in that way it it, it, it's almost it 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 plays into the film's hand almost in it's like the the, Mm. the benign pseudo benevolence of capitalism that's actually because like the direction that clamp goes by the end of the film you know it's it's sort of creating this artificial repackaged rockwell-esque vision of america that, that that's designed to exploit and extrapolate wealth from the land and funnel it upwards so he might seem like a nice guy and it's a very endearing performance but it's in service of a real prick a real let's not forget he's a piece of shit this guy i mean he, he slick demolished hair white chinos sloppy steaks <laughs> real piece of shit he demolished Chinatown yeah. in order yeah. to build up his own kind of sanitized american exactly. version quote unquote oriental town or whatever he calls it but he does pluck mm. that word out which is uh, in itself deeply problematic to, to me it kind of it does expand on the kind of uh deconstruction of the capra-esque small town america view by making mm. it be like jimmy stewart but mr potter on a grand <laughs> on a grand scale <laughs> mr smith runs a <laughs> fortune 500 company <laughs> Jimmy Stewart plays Steve Jobs is effectively what John Glover's doing here. <laughs> <laughs> and, and even to the point of like the, like you say, with the building kind of like, there's so much in that building. I was kind of like, even watching it now, um, that there was one point that, that, that there's so much that's kind of really predicts that the, the future of technology in w- very weird ways, be it a video mm. phone not really working as we have yeah. also experienced on this call today. Uh, <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> but, uh, there was there was one line that particularly grabbed me of like something that you've seen happen with streaming sites some uh, dealing with like old movie titles. It's just you hear the voiceover guy like tonight classic movie is yeah. Casablanca this time in color and with a happy ending. <laughs> 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 yeah, which is it, it's such a, a like a Disney Plus level of insidiousness. Yeah, <laughs> covering up Daryl Hannah's bottom in splash, or taking out the word "fuck" in Adventures in Babysitting to bring it back to that. Who knew that was going to come up twice? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but uh, just, just uh, going back to the the te- technology aspect of it, um, I think it it it's one of the best things about the film is that. You know, in the same way that people say about Jack Nicholson in The Shining, that he's kind of already lost it at the beginning of mm. the film. Mm-hmm. This building already has gremlins in yeah, before yeah, Gizmo yeah. ever arrives. You know, um, and like I, I just love the the idea, which I think is more fully fleshed out in this film than in the in the first one, 
that the gremlins are this inherent chaos that lies underneath all of this order that humans try to put on our lives be it through technology be it through uh capitalism there's always going to be that element of unpredictability and and chaos underneath yeah Um, Mm -hmm. and i I, that that's why i think this film does the satirical element a bit better than in the first one where it's just Mm -hmm. quite straight straightforward Mm. um and of course uh dick miller's character murray futterman does have the speech in the first film where he's like yeah you know he's this xenophobic character who damn foreign cars yeah it's the foreign cars right the the gremlins are foreign they're they're yeah you know if you buy uh imports um but i but yeah i i feel like it's uh that aspect of technological mania uh is it just makes this film uh work really well on a satirical level because i mean yeah. look how far we've come and we're still freezing on our on our yeah video call. yeah uh, <laughs> I, I i i think i think gremlins 3 if it, it comes out should be set in the in the metaverse <laughs> maybe that's been warner brothers plan with like releasing space jam 2 and along was just so you could have this meta <laughs> yeah come out of it. <laughs> you can imagine a film done in the style of searching or unfriended a, Grem- a gremlins film done in the style like a, a desktop horror film or whatever you call those you know mm-hmm. and even kind of like going back to the the figure of clamp himself um even like I, I was surprised to learn like even the most kind of like ridiculous elements of him so you you know that point where he plays the doomsday tape yeah yeah that, the, yes, that yeah. is something that the head of the network at cnn has and had <laughs> it's like a, a, which a, makes me kind of go christ did trump have one <laughs> a, 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 a branded end of civilization broadcast yeah. i i don't know if you if you guys follow the twitter account uh the institute oh, of gremlins 2 thank god somebody brought it up yes <laughs> uh, if if any listeners don't follow it i would highly advise you to check it out it's Absolutely. like an academic deconstruction <laughs> done through tweets of the film gremlins 2 going into the fine grain all of the details and how it relates to modern society <laughs> consumer culture postmodernism. Um, I think uh, he, the guy who runs it actually emailed Frederick Jameson, the kind of uh, wow. the, the, <laughs> the kind of sage of postmodern theory to ask yeah. what he thought about Gremlins 2. <laughs> I would love to know. <laughs> I would love to know. Unfortunately, he hadn't seen it, according to his email back. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> I hope that's changed. <laughs> <laughs> but but what one of the one of the tweets that um, that I love I think is their pinned tweet is that a lot of the concepts and things in Gremlins Two have failed to become satire anymore in 2021 because a lot yeah. of it has become reality. Yeah. You know? And and uh, in the tweet, uh, the institute calls it hyper Gremlinization. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but like for for instance you know it, it I, one of my favorite little bits is when they're going through the endless winding corridors of uh of the tv studios and a guy comes out of the archery channel yes. snapping <laughs> snapping an arrow on his knee in frustration i mean 
you know, nowadays with YouTube, you probably do have an archery channel. Yeah, yeah. You've got a YouTube channel or, or a Twitch dedicated to to firing a bow and arrow. You know, yeah. it's it's real. It's real. Yeah, and that that grotesque. Um... Uh, sort of retro futurist Julia Child type, who's uh, the microwave chef. She's <laughs> constantly who's, hammered. Uh, <laughs> she's constantly hammered. But if you listen to, even at the end when she's talking to the Futtermans and recommending a particular dish, what she describes is absolutely stomach turning. Oh, <laughs> all the dishes are horrible, aren't they? Yeah. Like, yeah. Was it just like a oh bean paste wrapped in bologna? Oh, <laughs> yeah. But it goes from the Julia Child sort of. Off, off, off the beaten track school of artisan cooking to this horrible, hyper processed, God knows what you're putting into your body form. And that, you know, that in itself, because, you know. Microwave of Marge, I think that's the name. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so many of us just blindly go around eating God knows what ready meals from Tesco, and, and you've no idea what you're putting into your body. You know. But... I also love how that the, the whole scene in the kitchen is yeah. just a rehash of the kitchen scene from the first yeah. film. Yeah. <laughs> but the, the Gremlins I, know how to use the microwave this time. They, they don't get, get a microwave. Yes. <laughs> they get one on the microwave. <laughs> oh, oh, speaking of, so th- that implies a certain memory for, because the Gremlins are obliterated, say for Gizmo at the end of the first film. And you have that memory of what the microwave is. And you have Spike is back in this one, despite dying yeah. in the last one. And the, the mm. Flasher Gremlin is back in this one too. So mm-hmm. that made me wonder. Kick him in the nuts this time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Does Gizmo contain the DNA and the, the sort of the, the sense memory of all these permutations of gremlins? <laughs> I've often wondered seem... about the kind of <laughs> <laughs> the genome of the of the Mogwai and how it <laughs> how it does kind of lead into, yeah. like you say, the makeup of each and every. Popped off. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think there is kind of a, a collective gremlin conscience. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, the, uh, manifests like the Borg, itself. perhaps. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> also, oh, actually, uh, when we were talking about favourite gremlins earlier, I failed to mention Daffy, the, the, goog- <laughs> the googly eye gremlin. Googly eye gremlin? <laughs> yeah. I I think he may be my favourite, particularly that bit when Kate brings him home to their apartment, (laughs) and he's just throwing bits of chicken at her and and just eating the sweet corn and belching. But also one of one of the one of the references to the the first film as well is that he sees a blender on the kitchen counter, yeah, just smashes it on the floor. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Not not getting blended this time. Not today, Lord. <laughs> uh, before I forget, whilst we're on the, whilst I had mentioned the Institute of Gremlins two studies, there was one little bit of trivia that I found on that Twitter account that made me re- <laughs> made me really giggle. Um, in March two thousand, that this is what something that they shared in March two thousand, an executive sent out a memo quoting the scene from Gremlins two, where the brain gremlin says to invest in canned food and shotguns. It was intended as a joke, but the resulting panic is what triggered the burst of the dot-com bubble. <laughs> <laughs> so the pure, anarchic, chaotic energy of Gremlins 2 continues to permeate the wider culture. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
I wondered uh, if we could talk about the um, the fourth wall break mm. a bit more. Yes, please. I mean, what 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 did you think when you first saw it? Did I'm you actually, actually think that? Yeah. To kind of go, what can you remember? What the version of what version you first saw? Because oh, I know yeah. there's a couple of different versions we, out there in the yeah. world. There's the one there's that is the film version, film reel burning. The there's version. the VHS, yeah. yeah. Well, I guess because did you you saw it on TV, Ollie first? Did you say? Yeah, the the I remember the first one I saw was on TV, and on on the one that they broadcast on TV, it yeah. was the movie theater version. Yeah, I guess it will have been with Hulk Hogan. Um, but then when I bought the VHS, there's a completely different yeah break on the VHS. Uh, it looks slightly different. Instead, the like they're covered in you know cassette tapes instead right. um, and they kind of channel hop into different yeah. movies the gremlins uh so they they end up in a, a john wayne film yeah think, yeah and have have a shootout on a ranch with john wayne uh, which, <laughs> i had no idea who john wayne was at the time yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> But I remember I, I, I was a, a very filmy kid, but I think I was raised in, in, in a household, a very meat and potatoes film household. And my parents are quite literal minded in, in the films that they like and anything that gets a bit too metatextual or postmodern. Certainly back in the 90s, I think they could struggle with a little bit. So um, I wasn't ready for what the Gremlins 2 did <laughs> when, when it gets to the fourth wall break. It really... It, I didn't know films could do that or be like that, and I, yeah. it, I, I struggle with it quite a bit. And it, you know, it was only watching it again in later years that I realised um, how <laughs> remarkable it is that the film goes to these lengths. <laughs> but certainly, yeah, definitely when I first saw it, it freaked it freaked me out. I was like Millhouse in uh, in Shelbyville. Because <laughs> <laughs> I like. It's a good point that you bring up is like the kind of like first idea of when a film kind of can do that. And like, because you kind of do accept it a bit more in something like a cartoon. And mm-hmm. we all would have grown up with cartoons that do do it a lot of the time. But you kind of accept that more because it is something that is drawn and it's it, there's just something about it that just makes it more palatable. And um, I, I can think like maybe like one of the earliest examples of seeing something that would so directly addressing camera was something like George of the Jungle, which I think mm. has a similar kind of yes. uh, sense yeah. of abandon. Um, but I remember, I do remember because I, and I think it's a shame that like the DVD of Gremlins Two that I've got keeps the cinema version, and I think it's a sh- it's a shame it's not the VHS one. There's just something that they are, <laughs> must have had a conversation where like what one makes more sense for DVD. <laughs> <laughs> But I do remember seeing it for the first time and like not quite quite having a full uh, cultural uh, knowledge of who Hulk Hogan Hulk Hogan was. So for me, it was just Thunderlips from Rocky Three <laughs> <laughs> or Abraham Lincoln for me when they're doing the hand puppets and one of them does oh, yeah. a hand puppet of yeah. Abraham Lincoln in the top. Oh, guys, it's seven years ago. <laughs> oh, it was God. just gibberish Don't to mention me. Mention Lincoln's birthday. <laughs> but what would so what did you make so you brought this up Ollie was there a, a reaction that you recall having when you first saw the fourth wall break I I just remember being so taken with it and just having mm. such an impact on me that films could do this it just yeah. opened yeah. up so many 
possibilities to me. Um, <laughs> you know, it, it, up to then, having only seen very uh, um, conventionally plotted things, just having what is essentially, as you say, Andy, something that's working in the mode of a cartoon. Um, and I was a big fan of cartoons and animations as a kid as well. Seeing that transcribed mm -hmm. on screen just had such an effect. Like, I absolutely loved it. Um, and I'd like replay that sequence again <laughs> and again just because I loved it so yeah. much. Uh, one thing I should uh, one thing I should mention as well about the fourth wall break. I don't know if you, you guys are familiar with the um, the Gremlins two novelization. What? Ooh, Hang baby. on. So so listeners, you can't oh, see, but babe. as 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 Ollie Guthrie said, Gremlins two novelization. He lifted into his Zoom window. A laminated copy of Gremlins 2, the novel that he has. What? <laughs> oh yeah, there was there was a tie-in. There was a tie-in. Uh, there was for the first film as well. <laughs> yeah. Um, this is the official novel. Holy of shit, Gremlins man! 2. Have you always had and that? I I have had it for a long time. It was after I was a fan of the film. Wow. And I didn't seek it out. I actually remember finding it at a um, YHA. You know, a youth hostel. Right. Uh, I can't, can't remember where, but I went on holiday with my parents, uh. and they kind of had a shared library in the in the lounge area of these places. And I remember just going through uh, the shelves and just finding the Gremlins two book and being like, "I'm I'm taking this." Wow. I'm sorry. Yeah, <laughs> I'm sure no one else now. is. I'm, I'm sure no one else is going to sit down on on a cold rainy night and and take out Gremlins yeah. two the novel. Um, but the reason why I bring it up is there is a fourth wall break in the oh, novel. Wow. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Which, give me a minute and, oh. I, and I shall find it. Ollie, you've made me a very happy man. <laughs> yeah, what, a, what a treat this is. What a treat you this is. You kept that one hidden. <laughs> I so, wish the listeners could see the way that Ollie revealed that to us. It was absolutely <laughs> masterful. <laughs> So on page 171, the paragraph stops <laughs> mid-sentence and the novel becomes taken over by the, grain, the brain gremlin uh, <laughs> who, according, according to uh, his writing, says, the novelizer, Mr. David Bischoff, Esquire, has been successfully waylaid and is now tied up in the bathroom of his Los Angeles apartment. <laughs> Do not attempt to adjust your book we have control of the programming. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then he kind of oh. goes on this, uh, this rambling uh, expose <laughs> of, uh, of capitalist culture and, and talks about how the gremlins are going to set up a new society, um, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and uh, until the end of the chapter when uh, the, the author proper breaks out of the bathroom. And takes control of the <laughs> takes control of the novel once more. <laughs> oh, I mean, how much fun would this film have been to work on? Both on like on Jeez. set, like you say, there's that whiteboard where anyone can write their bits down. Then there's promotional bits that that like that where they can like the novel <laughs> the, the novelist is allowed to just kind of like go again, just really play with the form. And I shared it with you guys earlier as well. There was that. Uh, a uh, promotional video that like stu so st studios back in the day whenever they were sending videos out for um rental stores to consider to stock they'd have to kind of like make a little pitch as to why they should stock the film 
and uh, the the gremlins to uh, pitch is again it's the brain gremlin taking over con- control of the pitch to tell them tell video stores why they need to stop this movie. Uh, I I just can't. Oh, it's so special. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> exactly, and that that that's just that's what made me love it so much. It's yeah, yeah. It's just it, they're just having so much fun with what they're doing. You know, they're breaking all of the rules. And as a kid yeah. who quite liked to break the rules myself, I just <laughs> loved seeing that on screen. Yeah, but then I, I, I think almost like playing into the film's satire. I was thinking about how that would manifest these days, and it would be a Gremlins Twitter takeover or a Gremlins TikTok takeover. Yeah or something mm. like that and that is a, a perfect example of something that, that this film hints at is when corporations they sort of um absorb and re repropagate critique of capitalism and they sort of sell subversion and they give you this proxy feeling of of subversive acts when in reality you are yes. just playing into the master's hands and i think the the modern forms of, of what you guys are talking about with the the, the book and the 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 film that was sent to video rental outlets that would be online that would be done through yeah. mega corporations on twitter on tiktok and instagram and it would have that it would be what the film is satirizing it would be these big you know conglomerates selling subversion and the film almost the film almost insists it has to be a failure the film almost says we can't make money <laughs> we, we can't have any more sequels because that would that would undermine what we're doing as a satire. So it's really exactly. put itself in the perfect position. Uh, it, yeah. Speaking of that, it's funny you should say that because there, I think there was a, uh, an advert for BT, which featured the Gremlins. I can't remember. It was for some telecommunications mm. company. Mm. It, was a, it was an advert that went out on British TV that featured the Gremlins. And it was just like, this is going against everything yeah. that the film <laughs> yeah. was about, Gremlins 2 at least. Um, and that's why I think as well, I wouldn't want to see a Gremlins 3. I, I, I feel like Gremlins 2 should be the last word. It was certainly yeah. Joe Dante's last word. And I don't imagine he would have any interest in working on a third one, um, mm. especially because I think he'd be kept on a leash way more nowadays. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no interest in number three, even though Zach Galligan gets asked about it at every appearance he does <laughs> yeah. at yeah. the British <laughs> Cinema. <laughs> Because I remember us uh, going to a Q&A with Zach Gargan at yeah. uh, Prince Charles a few years back and like him using the kind of like um, comparison of how well like Jurassic World did and saying like doing something like that. And I was like, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Nah, nah. Kind of misses the point. Like you say, Ollie, it does miss the point because this film, and again, kind of to your point, Josh, it, it almost makes a third film impossible because how do yeah. you do a direct sequel to gremlins 2 <laughs> it's asking you not to and yeah it is. yes we are and i i do i do think we are gonna end up seeing it but i think it's going to be very very much dependent on this uh tv series that is happening yeah. for hbo max which i believe is out at some point this year there's an animated mm. series coming that's going to go into the 1920s shanghai origins of uh the mogwai themselves which is something that's oh no so removed from the kind of idea of what Gremlins 2 is doing because this is not a sequel in the sense that wants to expand on the mythologizing of these creatures it just wants to yeah like like we've discussed just kind of completely play with the form and 
idea of expectation and i can see warner brothers using this animated show as a kind of uh testing the waters to see what an audience appetite is for this property still Mm. and if that ends up being a hit i can see free happening and i i imagine it would be dante less Mm. um oh yeah i would say so uh i think chris columbus has been quite has been quite a vocal voice in terms of being involved in it so i wouldn't be surprised if it ends up being a chris columbus joint Mm. well well chris columbus hated chris columbus hated the second film apparently because i yeah yeah. because you know dante it just did his own thing and uh Mm. you know of course columbus was uh the guy who came up with the initial idea yeah Um, yeah his first old screenplay right (laughs) really backed himself there he he must have been because that that was before he was what what was babysitting his first directorial job or was it yeah i believe so he he must have been pulling from some darkness that was in him before he was a success because you you look at everything pretty much since then it's very wholesome family fair i guess home alone the home alone films have a, a, a darkness to them but I do see him more as a kind of consummate, not consummate, but, you know, a reliable journeyman, wholesome yeah. family entertainment provider. And it's weird to mm-hmm. think that he's the man that birthed this franchise. Yeah. <laughs> and it was it, it was a lot darker in the original script. So yeah, 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 uh, yeah. Yeah. But uh, no, I, I think going back to Gremlins 3, as I said earlier, the, the only one I'd want to see is Gremlins in the metaverse. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Perhaps- yeah. Perhaps with a 5G gremlin in place of the electricity gremlin. (laughs) (laughs) He's already taken out airplanes if the headlines are anything to go by today. (laughs) (laughs) One one thing I should say about this novel as well. Um, (laughs) Yes, yes, yes. Just to go back to it. Uh, it really puts into uh, into perspective how this can only work as a film. Um, trying to read slapstick humor in prose is uh, not, doesn't really work. It's like try and describe a, an anvil dropping on someone's head. Uh, it yeah. doesn't have the same effect, really. Uh, I, how willing are you to library that out? that out to us <laughs> oh yeah by all means by all means <laughs> i'd love to read that <laughs> <laughs> i was super into my noveliz- novelizations of movies as a child i need to scratch that <laughs> <laughs> i remember the, the one for me was when the first spider-man film came out and it was rated 12 yeah. at an age when i was i think i was about uh 9 10 when it came out uh so i had to the only spider-man fix that i could get a film that was heavily marketed at nine-year-olds, by the way. The only fix that I could get was reading the novelization, and uh, mm-hmm. some pretty dark shit, man. The the, the, <laughs> the death of Norman Osborn <laughs> reads reads quite harrowingly for a little nine-year-old boy. Yeah, but anyway, I had to comment it's... for that. That was equally graphic. Yeah, <laughs> but I guess it's been defanged and declawed now by Tom Holland, so he's uh, free to live on in in the multiverse. <laughs> You're not using this space to air <laughs> your grievances of a new Spider-Man movie. I, Ollie, Ollie, I, I really almost want you to see the new Spider-Man because I, I can't imagine the, the multicolored rainbow of hate that it will instill <laughs> <from> within you. 
I mean, Spider-Man Two is probably my favorite superhero film, so I uh, I would take it as a personal affront if it doesn't match up to that. Um, <laughs> what does that? What does? What does? <laughs> <laughs> and I, to, I, sorry, uh, I know we want to we want to get off of of Spider-Man, but I but I feel like Sam Raimi is quite similar to to joe dante yeah, in the way that yes. he, he broke through into that uh into that blockbuster and and the, even the evil dead as well as a franchise yeah. is self-reflexive in the way that gremlins is um, yeah so yeah, e- love evil dead 2 shares a, shares a lot with this so e- probably the the film that i is most equal for me in my eyes is the best dumb smart movie <laughs> yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> I guess Remy looks back to like the Three Stooges, whereas Dante looks back to, you know, Bugs and like, Chuck Bugs Jones. Bugs and Daffy. Yeah, yeah. Tex Avery. <laughs> but it's still pulling from a similar well. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and he's, well, you know, it, it, I guess a, a, quite a, an interesting parallel is that Dante has kind of, he made his, what, 15 films, then backed out, and then Remy... You, you you either die an outcast or live long enough to be adapted by the uh, absorbed by the MCU, which is what Raimi's very much done with the latest Doctor Strange. We'll yeah. see how that plays out, but mm. you know I can't see it reaching the heights of Spidey's one or two, particularly mm. two. Which yeah. again, fuck, what a great film! <laughs> yeah, the the possibilities are just becoming narrower and narrower. Yeah, yeah, they? yeah. When it when it comes to Hollywood. Um, and you know, as as I get older, as I say, this film Gremlins Two just the, there's so much to like about it. More than anything, it's a film that just couldn't be made today. Um, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Oh, I agree. Boy. It really, it really is a both not a product of its time and too ahead of its. It's very much the definition of too ahead of its time. <laughs> to yeah. be successful then and like even now it's gotten <laughs> to a point where i just can't see this sort of take on a sequel or the kind of like extreme satire towards kind of corporate america that it does have landing in a in a in a mega blockbuster way it just i i, I just don't see the reality but like i also think that the film is very happy with that reality <laughs> for itself anyway. It, it could be like, we told you. <laughs> we at <Much> Rambling... prescient. <laughs> we at Rambling want to put it on record that we are with the Gremlins. We side with the Gremlins. Brain Gremlin is our friend. And to, to like... To, to kind of wrap it up with this kind of like point of uh, that you were kind of making with the fourth wall break of how it is this first time that you're, I imagine for many people kind of are introduced to cinema through like Amblin movies and to see Gremlins 2 in this canon and be the, be a film that has this moment of fourth wall break and has these moments where uh, actors are actively reacting to, stuff that they've previously done or the score is echoing Sylvester Stallone blockbusters or what what all the things that are going on here and it is all how under the banner of uh, a, a production company that is responsible for the most sincere blockbusters of the of the period and uh, and what to this day continue to have that fallout of what you accept as the kind of um earnest hollywood 
blockbuster and Gremlins 2 is the complete I, I love that it's within that canon, but it's that complete, like, yeah. antithetical footnote to the whole idea of the Hollywood blockbuster, which mm-hmm. makes it so, it, it, yeah, makes it so special. <laughs> it really is very special, Gremlins 2. It's it's a very, <laughs> very special movie, yeah. <laughs> so, Ollie, I, I think feel like this, this, sorry, you do go on. I feel like it's uh, it's interesting as Amblin goes into the 90s when mm-hmm. the definition of an Amblin movie maybe becomes mm. a bit more amorphous and not yes. as easy to pin down as those 80s ones. Yeah. And, uh, it comes uh, of yeah, age I'm in interest- the 90s, for sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, it, it widens the scope somewhat. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, I'm, I'm interested to in seeing what your guys' opinions on uh, yeah. on the rest of the, the 90s films that come out of the studio. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I, I was going to say, because this was uh, quite early on when, when Andy and I first started the podcast, uh, you know, a year and a few months ago now. This was, you set your stall for Gremlins 2, the new batch, way back in I the did. day. So I feel like the, the last word on the matter has to go to you. Is there anything you want to uh, impart upon our listeners as we depart uh, uh, from Clamp Center? Is that what it's called? <laughs> Clamp Center? Clamp Towers. Clamp Towers, I think, yeah. And the Clamp Cable Network. Uh, <laughs> yeah, um, I mean, it, it's interesting that you say that I, I put my hat in earlier. I did. But actually, I had no idea that this was an Amblin film, that Gremlins 2 mm. was actually part of the of the Amblin, uh, of the Amblin oeuvre. Because where, I had to look it up when you guys announced this podcast to see what films were part of Amblin. I mean, I knew the obvious ones, but mm-hmm. uh, when I saw Gremlins 2 on there, I was quite shocked because it just, it <laughs> yeah. doesn't fit in with what I expect from <laughs> an Amblin entertainment film. But no, I'm, uh, I obviously jumped at the chance. Uh, I love this film. I think it's it's so special. And um, yeah, Joe Dante, please come back. <laughs> <laughs> we love you, We need you. <laughs> I feel like John Turturro in Miller's Crossing. Please have a heart. <laughs> not, to, not to imply Dante has no heart. I'm sure he does, but yeah, that, that, I, I'm that level of. Now it's more studios have a heart. <laughs> Let the guy make his Roger Corman yeah. biopic yeah. or whatever it is yeah. what he wants to do. <laughs> exactly. Oh god, don't <laughs> tease me with that. <laughs> oh. What's that? This is Gizmo. What? He's a Mogwai. Mogwai! It's funny. I look at him. You know what I see? What's that, sir? Dolls with suction cups staring out car windows. A big float in the Macy's Day Parade. Has anybody ever talked to you about merchandising? Talk to me? Yeah. No. Well, there is definitely something there. Maybe lose that headband, though. He likes the headband. It's flexible, Bill. Um, excuse me, will you? You know... So, listeners, Andy's a much more studious Twitter monitor than I am, and I, I thought we had no responses to our call-out, but as Andy's pointed out now, there were in fact two! And the reason he's reading both is because he's better than I am, and he's got both on his computer screen, and I have nothing. I have I deleted the Twitter portion of my notes page, so... Anyway, anyway go on, Andrew. Uh, very kind of you to. <laughs> I, I was going to let you get away with that. <laughs> well, you are the editor, so you can take that out if you want to. But I'll leave yeah. that we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> so yes, we did ha- indeed have two tweets in. 
Uh, we had one from Cat Hughes at Gizmo Shakiri on Twitter to say, I watched Gremlins 2 on repeat when I was at infant school at least once a day for years. Might just be my watched film ever. Looking forward to this a lot. And I really hope that our, our episode has <laughs> has covered the bases you wanted to cover and you enjoyed it because I'm, uh, judging by your, the, the Twitter name as well, Gremlins and particularly Gremlins 2 must mean a great deal to you. <laughs> <laughs> I believe Cat's cat is also called Gizmo. <laughs> it could name for a cat. Yeah. And we posited <laughs> earlier that, 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 that gremlins must clean themselves like cats. He's <laughs> definitely <laughs> cat-like in this one as well. <laughs> <laughs> and we also had a tweet from Victor Field at CindyLover1969 on Twitter to say that he thought the film was marvellous. Uh, and he shared an anecdote about that when he tried to see it for the first time back in 1990. The only problem I had going to see it was that I was living in Barbados at the time. It's all right for some Victor. Yeah, uh, <laughs> And the cinema I saw it in uh, stopped the movie before the closing credits finished, which meant he. it was only until video years later that he managed to see Porky and Daffy Duck's cameos. Uh, he also points out that uh, Mad Magazine at the time based a lot of its satire on Donald Trump for when it came to Donald for when it came to Daniel Clamp, largely because Mad Magazine was based in New York City, and he also dreads to think what Donald Trump's uh, end of the world video would be like. <laughs> and also, fun fact: Jerry Goldsmith specifically asked for dialogue with his cameo because in the first film he didn't get any direction whatsoever. <laughs> which, which, which? Do you know who it is that Jerry Goldsmith? Because I can't visualize him. He's someone. In the first one, he's someone in a phone booth. Mm, in the in the in, uh, the inventors expo. Thing. Yeah, yeah. Who is he in the new one, in the second one? I think he's in the food court. He is. He's a, he's a. Oh, is he one of the guys? The, when one of the the Mogwai or Gremlins emerges from the uh, the Skittles, M and M's or whatever. Well, M&Ms, um, whatever yeah. He's he's one of the he's one of the bystanders. Ah, okay. Yeah. He kind of looks quite right like a like a 18th century composer, quite Beethoven. <laughs> I can't believe I didn't even think to bring up Jerry Goldsmith's score in this. So one last little note on Gremlins 2 is how much fun Gremlins 2 uh, yeah. Jerry Goldsmith is having. Both he, reworking the themes, yeah, adding penny whistles and clown horse clown horns as we talked about and also managing to find the sweet sweet middle ground between Gizmo's theme and his own work on Rambo First Blood Part 2. <laughs> yeah. yeah, he quotes it without uh, drawing any lawsuits. Exactly. <laughs> Although apparently Sylvester Sloan was more than happy for them to use his image and likeness. <laughs> of course he was. Good old Sloan. Good old Sloan. <laughs> oh, was also- so that does... Yeah. Go ahead, Josh. No, I was going to say there, there are a few little notes that, that to me certainly lean back to inner space as well, but that's more of a Josh Glenn thing than anybody else. Doesn't the the labs has the same name as the labs in inner space? I believe. Is that? Is that <laughs> yes. I mean, 
Spectre Labs or whatever it is. <laughs> from this, from things that Ollie's pointed out in this conversation, there's so much that I've missed having only seen this film about five times in my life. I've got to watch it more and see everything that's that's going on in the background. I, it will only ever creep up in your estimations as the more you yeah. watch it as well. <laughs> what well, one of my absolute favourites is listen to the smart building announcer. Um, mm-hmm. Oh God, he's hilarious. When, when they go into the the men's bathroom. This is the men's room. <laughs> hey, buddy. I hope you washed your hands. <laughs> and and of course, my, my, my absolute favorite is um, yeah. when the building is on fire and the fire alarm goes off. It's like, destroyer of forests. <laughs> this building is on fire. <laughs> Can the owner of the car with license plate, blah, 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 please remove it from the property. It's old and dirty. <laughs> <laughs> There's so many little asides. Yeah, it, it just... So many. It, it oh, just, it, it's, it's a film you can rewatch endlessly, just to look out for this stuff. Yeah. Might even have to pop it on again after this with the commentary this time. <laughs> Joe Dante does a good commentary, kind of. Just yeah. God, I mean, looking back, I've got, I've got a whole section of my notes page that's just quotes, and there's so many great quotes that, <laughs> that I didn't get a chance to talk about. <laughs> anyone, you're, any any particular one you want to reel off before we call it a day? <laughs> we can't let them get out. All they have to do is eat three or four children, and it's going to be the most appalling publicity. <laughs> my uh, another one of my favorites is when um, Bob Picardo goes into the uh, genetics lab and says, "This is a complete failure of management." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> also, to just cap that off with one of my favorite Robert Picardo quotes in the whole thing is like, "Whoever they are." They've just got to respect the chain of yes. command. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's got to be rats, right? So I'm afraid it's not. Or whatever they are. Oh. I... Well, Ollie, thank you so much once again for joining us for this. Uh, you're the perfect man for the job. Yeah. <laughs> it's really hard for having me to on, stop guys. talking about this film, as we've proven, I think. <laughs> Thanks for having me on, and uh, I'll be sure to tune in as you uh, go through the 90s. Looking forward to it. Thank you, man. Oh, yeah. is, there, is there any social media accounts that you would like to to promote if the people should want to hear more about what you have to say, be it about Gremlins 2 or anything else? <laughs> <laughs> uh, maybe I should set up a rival institute of Gremlins 2. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Um, yeah, I, on Twitter, I'm at OG Episodes, um, although I haven't posted in a long time. Um, I'm also on Letterbox at Oliver G. Uh, likewise, I haven't posted in a long time. Uh, I've kind of had a the movie watching version of writer's block, but um, mm-hmm. I have to say, watching all the Joe Dante films for this podcast has kind of uh, rekindled the flame. So, um, Hell yeah. yeah, hoping to uh, might we be a bit more active. The Matrix there. Resurrections is your first well, well. <laughs> trip. <laughs> <laughs> Does it match up to Reloaded and uh, and Revolutions, Josh? I know they're high in your estimation. I mean, I, one, what, what I kind of said uh, in, in my little letterbox review was that it took me a long, it took me many, many years to love Reloaded and, Resur- uh, Reloaded and Revolutions as much as I do. So the fact that I like Resurrections this much already speaks highly. But um, but yeah, I mean, I've got so many years invested in the 
previous two sequels that it's going to take a while for anything to top those. But it, it, mm-hmm. I mean, shit, man, it's great. It's really good. <laughs> it's a really good movie. I'm going to check it I'll, out. I'll see it with I'm you gonna check it out. Yeah. It's been two years it's since my I've been favorite in the movie Matrix sequel. <laughs> <laughs> high praise, high praise indeed. Uh, and thank you, dear listener, for joining us once again. And we hope you come back to join us next time where our next film will be Frank Marshall, one of the founding fathers of Mm Abandon Entertainment, his directorial debut with the 1990 horror comedy, sticking in that realm, Arachnophobia. Uh, Should you wish to watch the film along with us and don't happen to have it on disc, it is available to stream for those of you that have a Virgin Go subscription. Otherwise, you can rent or buy it digitally from Amazon, Apple TV, Chili, Google Play, Microsoft Store, Sky Store, and YouTube. If you uh, have any thoughts, if you, if it terrified you as a child, like I know the, the video cover certainly did me as a child, please do tweet us at ramblinamblin or email us at ramblinaboutamblin at gmail.com and share your thoughts on arachnophobia. As an aside, do you guys remember that film Eight Legged Freaks with uh, David Arquette and? Uh, yeah, I was uh, talking about this film oh, the other yeah. day. Actually, yeah, <laughs> it's weird. Like that was a film I had. That's one of the like one of maybe the second or third DVD I ever bought because it came out what two thousand two, back in like Ish. the early days of the DVD that boom. Era. And that's a film that I would like a tweeter that tweeted in about watching Gremlins two every day. I would watch that film every day for several weeks. It's absolutely <laughs> insane. Um, so I think I might rewatch that again in the preparation for arachnophobia and talk about that. Pairing with arachnophobia, yeah. Regular sized spiders and uh, big spiders. Eight legged freaks. Eight-legged freaks. Um, yeah, man. What happened to that film? No, no cultural footprint. Anyway, is arachnophobia one you've seen, Ollie? I think I've seen bits of it um i remember they did like a creature feature um series on on one of the channels back in the day and i remember they played piranha that was the first time i saw piranha oh wow and, uh, yeah arachnophobia was one of the ones and i don't think i stayed for the entirety but um, <laughs> i'll definitely watch it before before listening to your guys podcast for sure oh thank you man and we hope you do too dear listener as we, uh, our next episode we'll sink our teeth into arachnophobia Thank you again, Ollie. It's been a pleasure to have you here. I've been Andrew Godian. I've been Josh Glenn. <laughs> don't know why I said it like that. I don't know. And all together, we've been rambling and ambling podcast all about Gremlins 2, the new batch. We'll see you next time for Arachnophobia. Until then, take care. Goodbye. Sorry, 60 years of hogging the end title is enough. So, that's all, folks.
down. 